Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, and we want you to be able to look on as we look at a particular passage in Romans 8. That's why these gentlemen have Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisle, and if you need a copy of Scripture, get their attention. They'll get one to you, and it is marked at Romans 8 so that you can follow along. We also have an outline inserted in your program. We'll be making reference to that throughout the message, beginning in just a bit. The church scene can be very confusing. If you take a short drive anywhere pretty much in America, you'll pass by multiple churches. There'll be a bewildering array of labels on those churches, Catholic, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, Bible... Church of Christ, Church of God, Church of God of Prophecy, Church of God headquartered Anderson, Indiana, Church of God headquartered Cleveland, Tennessee, Assembly of God, New Jerusalem, Apostolic Mount Moriah, Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the River Church, the Journey Church, and on it goes. And unless you're a church historian and so know the origin of all these, you can just easily throw up your hands and say, I have no earthly idea. We actually have a, a Discovering God series on that very issue. We're probably due to resurrect that. But in the meantime, most of us remain quite confused. Well, one way to begin to get your arms around it just a bit is to recognize that at least some of the differences that have given rise to different labels are really about non-essential matters. For instance, our Presbyterian friends, and I attended both a Baptist seminary and a Presbyterian seminary, so I mean it when I say friends, but our Presbyterian friends are so-called due to their form of church government. Presbyterian is a form of church government. Many of you know that I was raised Pentecostal. Pentecostals believe that what happened at Pentecost still happens today. People are given the ability to speak in languages that they never learned, and so it's called speaking in tongues. Some of you are familiar with that, or at least have heard of that. Now, what happens with our Pentecostal friends is not usually, what they do today is not usually what happened on Pentecost, since when they are speaking in tongues, it's usually speech that neither the speaker nor the hearers understand. But in any case, that's their distinctive, that what happened in the first century church still happens today. Except, of course, no one is writing Scripture like they did back then, but that inconsistency is quickly passed over. Now, I've implied that things like the form of church government or even speaking in tongues are non-essential matters. It doesn't mean that they're unimportant. It just means that they are not the essence, the essential of Christianity. The core of Christianity is something other than church government or whether you speak in tongues. So what is it? What is the, the essence of Christianity? If you had to distill it in a single word, what would it be? Well, I would suggest to you that the essence of Christianity is what the Bible calls the gospel. 
It's the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And even though there are many, many, and frankly, too many individual churches, all people who believe the gospel, whatever their denomination, the Bible teaches, are part of the body of Christ with whom we will share heaven someday. Now, if I'm correct that the gospel is the core of Christianity, then would you agree that we want to make sure that we understand and live out the gospel? And it's particularly important for our church, this church, to remind ourselves of that fact for a couple of reasons. One is we've come to a milestone in the life of our church with the acquisition of this building, which we call, most of you know, our ministry center. The next two Sunday evenings, as Pastor Matt mentioned, we're going to have our annual servants' seminars. And the theme of this year's seminars is becoming a full-service church, bringing the Bible to life. And as you'll hear when you attend, it's about how we can use now this resource to bring the Scripture, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the Gospel, to real life as we minister to the people in our community and we apply the Gospel to their struggles. But this requires, does it not, that we have a clear grasp of the Gospel and understand how it affects our lives. So that's one reason it's important for us to in Pastor Matt's good word, recalibrate, make sure that we understand the gospel and its implications because God has brought us to this point in the history of our church. But another reason is that it's very easy to get off-center. When you emphasize helping people with their struggles, as we want to do, if you're not careful, you can come to believe that the meeting of needs is an end in itself. So if we have a ministry to help unwed mothers, for instance, as we hope to do, then we've not ended our task when we've simply helped them financially or emotionally. We want to do that. But we want them to see themselves and their baby and all of life through the prism of the gospel. And so it requires that we thoroughly understand and that we live out the gospel so that it remains our central message and it permeates everything that we do. I read an article some years ago called The Hyphenated Church, When Preference Becomes Precept. The author said, A hyphenated church is a fellowship which, whether officially or unofficially, ascertains orthodoxy or at least the very least real maturity based upon some preference which has been elevated to be seen as an essential precept. Whether spoken or not, the members of hyphenated congregations often determine fellowship, maturity, sanctification, and so on by adherence to certain predetermined yet unjustifiable preferences. The preference has become a de facto filtering test and litmus within the congregation. He says, I've used the term hyphenated to describe this phenomenon in the sense that the fellowship, as functionally viewed and operated by the insiders, reflects this filtering device as if it were actually appended to the congregation's name. Trinity Baptist Church, hyphen KJV only. Grace Reformed Church, hyphen a Republican church. New Life Community Church, hyphen a homeschooling fellowship, and on it goes. 
And do you see how very easily you get off center? Dr. McCune from seminary used to say that over time churches become known for something, sometimes a quirk of the pastor. So he's an end times expert and he spends 50% of his preaching and teaching on end times stuff or some other hobby horse about which he often preaches and teaches. And the question for us then at this juncture in the history of our church is what will Community Bible Church be known for in Trenton and surrounding communities? We want it to be about the essential truths of Christianity. And those essential truths can be summed up in a word, gospel. Now you may be thinking, well, this will be a short message because I can give you the gospel in 15 seconds. Gospel means good news. Bad news is we're sinners. Good news is Jesus Christ died to rescue sinners. Ask him to save you. He will. You'll have a relationship with God and be in heaven forever when you die. Amen. Let's leave. Well, that is a fine summary of the gospel as far as it goes. In fact, I have a shorthand summary that I often use at the end of messages that many of you have seen. Realize you're a sinner. Recognize Christ died for your sin. Repent of your sin. Receive Christ into your life. But we need to understand, friends, that those are indeed summaries. The Bible has more to say, in fact, quite a bit more to say about the gospel. And if it's going to affect our thinking and indeed our living, then we need to know the detail behind the summary. So over the next few weeks, I want to explore what the Bible says about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now, if you were paying attention a couple of weeks ago, I had said then that when we finished our study in the book of James, we would then begin a series in 1 Peter. We will do that in a few weeks after this series that I've titled The Gospel for Real Life. Let's ask God to help us then as we begin. Our Father, we thank you that we have appropriated as your people the message of the gospel centered on Jesus. We thank you as well that you have committed to us as your ambassadors the message of reconciliation that is the gospel. Lord, we want to be faithful to that. We want to be daily, weekly, and every year as individuals and as a church transformed by its message. And so help us, Lord, to stay centered and help us in these weeks at this important juncture in the life of your church for us to recalibrate on the gospel and move forward on its foundation. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you want to get a detailed explanation of the gospel in the Bible, where would you go? You have lots of places that mention the Bible. It's used just under 100 times in your New Testament. It's used most often in two books in particular, in Romans and in Galatians. Now Galatians' six chapters are a refutation of a false gospel. And so you have the word gospel used a number of times, but a number of times it's used to refute a false teaching, a false gospel. Romans, on the other hand, is the other book in which the word gospel is used most often, and it is an explanation of the gospel. And I've asked you to turn to Romans 8, and we're going to focus for a bit 
in a bit on verses 29 and 30. But I want you to see how those verses 29 and 30 of chapter 8 connect to the overall explanation of the gospel that is the book of Romans. Verse 29, Romans 8, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now notice that verse 29 begins with the word for. You could substitute there the word because. So what follows in verse 29 is an explanation of what proceeds. For, because. And so it's connected to what precedes verse 29. For, because, because of what? Well, that's in the verse before, verse 28, which starts with, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So the and is now connecting it to what goes before that. And this connecting takes place throughout the book of Romans. So I'd like to take a few minutes with your indulgence. I know we've all lost an hour of sleep, but I'd, I'd like to, for you, and maybe this will keep you awake. We're going to turn to a few passages. For us to see that connecting, where it starts and, and where it ends. And it starts back in chapter 1. So hold your finger in chapter 8, if you will, and look back at chapter 1. Very first verse, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then as he gives introductory comments, Going all the way down through verse 7, he begins to get into his reason for writing this 16-chapter letter to these Christians in the city of Rome. And down in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Now, why is he eager? And the next verse, verse 16, says for again. And what does for mean? Because. Why am I so eager? Because, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Well, then that raises a question. Well, how is the gospel the power of God for everyone who believes? And I say, along with Paul, I'm glad you asked. The next verse, verse 17, for, because... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But that raises then another question. Why do I need a righteousness from God? What's wrong with my own righteousness? Glad you asked. And Paul goes on now to give an explanation in verse 18 of chapter 1. And it says in the NIV, which most of you have, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. But in Greek, there's another for there. It's actually literally for because the wrath of God is being revealed. Why do you need a righteousness from outside of yourself? What's wrong with your own righteousness? Because the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so verse 18 begins to answer the question, 
why we need the gospel, which we've already seen now is a righteousness that comes from God. And then from chapter 1 and verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 8, there's an extended argument showing that all, Jews and Gentiles alike, are sinners who are in need of this righteousness from God because none of us has any of our own. So please look at chapter 3 and verse 9. After a couple of chapters then showing that Jews and Gentiles, all of us, are without our own righteousness because of our godlessness and wickedness, because of our sin, chapter 3 and verse 9, what shall we conclude then? After all that, do we have any advantage that is we Jews? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. In chapter 3 and verse 9, all the way down to, through verse 20, just gives this catalog, actually of quotations from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament to show that this has been the nature and the plight of man all along. This is nothing new. It gives a summary then of the totality of our sin. And if Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, were to end there, then we would be most desperate indeed and most miserable. Because that's all the bad news. But thanks be to God, the connections continue. Verse 21 of chapter 3 but now, <laughs> but now, in contrast to all of that, and do you remember how it started back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for everyone who believes because, verse 17 of chapter 1, in it, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is made known. And now you come full circle Chapter 3 and verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets, the first part of your Bible, all point, all testify. And then it goes on to explain that this comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, 7, and 8, after this explanation then, of the need for the gospel, and Christ as central to the gospel. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 are then about the Holy Spirit's work in those who have received this righteousness that comes from God. And then you have chapters 9, 10, and 11, and they show that the Jews and Israel still have a role to play in God's overall plan, and it ends this long explanation of the gospel and its implications. It ends in chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. 
To him be the glory forever. Amen. And this concludes 11 chapters of explanation. And then the five final chapters of the letter to the Romans. Chapters 12 through 16 are how to apply what has been said in chapters 1 through 11. And this is the last passage I'll have to you turn to and we'll go back to Romans 8. But chapter 12, verse 1 then, starts out this way. Therefore, <laughs> because of all of that, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. And where did you see God's mercy? You've seen it in these 11 chapters. It's all about this explanation of the gospel. Now, therefore, in view of the marvelous mercy of God, this is how you need to live. And the last five chapters are about that very thing. Now, back then to chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The for of verse 29 connects to verse 28, and the and of verse 28 connects to the verses before that. And chapter 8 speaks of our travails, our trials, living in a fallen world. It speaks of the groaning of the present world, the, the natural world and the groaning of our own bodies, our trials and our difficulties. And it shows that how we handle these, hear this, friends, is connected to the gospel. Verse 26 of chapter 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Paul has already told us, you don't have the Spirit unless you have received the gospel. And so you receive the gospel and you, you get the Spirit, and then the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how we, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Which then brings us to that famous verse, Romans 8:28, And we know. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you see the connection? Now, get the connection here. When people who have embraced the gospel and are being transformed by the Spirit that they receive when they acknowledge and appropriate the gospel, when that happens now, those people pray. They don't know how to pray. They're living in a fallen world. We don't know what's best. But God the Holy Spirit does. And God the Holy Spirit translates our prayers so that they will be, according to verse 27, within the will of God. And then verse 28, we know that God works all things for the good of those who love Him. Get this. He is saying that God is moving heaven and earth on behalf of His people. We know that God's working all things. For who? For us. Even in the midst of the difficulty. That's one of the implications of the gospel. And then verse 29 says, and, and just let me, Paul, who wrote this, make sure you're really clear on this. Everything that God is doing now is ultimately for the good of his people who have embraced the gospel. For, because... 
those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what is the gospel? That becomes a pretty big question then, doesn't it? And I have in your outline, and we're going to explore over the next few weeks, the gospel begins with God. The gospel begins with God. Chapter 1, it's the gospel of God. It was God who set apart Paul for the gospel. It was God who made the promises through the prophets in the past with regard to this coming good news, this Savior who would be central to that good news. The gospel begins with God. It was God's idea. As we saw in Romans chapter 11, it is about the glory of God because it is from Him and to Him and through Him and for Him that are all things. The gospel begins and ultimately ends with God. The Bible tells us that life is about this God who knows everything and He is able to use everything that He knows for his purpose, including the good of his people. That's how verse 28 can be true. God works all things together for good. Isaiah chapter 46, the prophet said, God said through the prophet, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. And even in seemingly mundane things like the casting of a lot, that's like rolling dice. God's in control of how that comes out. Proverbs 21. Or excuse me, Proverbs 16. Go to the next verse if you would, Larry. I'm sorry. I went too fast. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so even the casting of a lot, rolling of a dice, how that's going to turn out, it's all in God's plan. And further, the decisions of political leaders. That's the verse that I had prior. The decisions of political leaders. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so the gospel begins with this God who knows and controls all things. And verse 29 tells us, This God foreknew and predestined. I say in your outline, it begins with God, and it begins with God's, first of all, loving choice. For those God foreknew, the Bible says God foreknew his children. Now, in its simplest meaning, foreknew simply means to know something ahead of time, know something beforehand. But when it's applied to the activities of an all-knowing God, it takes on a much deeper meaning. Now, I just want to dispense quickly with a false view of that is fairly popular out there of what God's foreknowledge is about. That God's foreknowledge is simply for him to know in advance, and so God just looks down through the tunnel of time, sees what's going to happen, and then, now get this, he reacts to what he sees. And you've got to ask yourself a question, who put that movie together that God's watching? I mean, God's looking at what? Who made that movie? Who's the producer and director of that movie? At the end of that movie, all the credits will say God Almighty. So if God is looking down through time, God is looking at stuff that God determined is going to happen. God is acting. God is not reacting. 
I'm going to show you some other reasons that foreknowledge cannot simply mean knowing ahead of time when it's applied to God. I'll show you some other reasons in just a minute, but just for now, think about this. If those who would embrace the gospel did so simply because God knew ahead of time and then reacted to this knowledge that he got from somewhere or somebody else. If God was looking down through time and saying, when is Ken Brown going to receive me as Savior? Or when is any particular person in the world going to receive me as Savior? As God looked down through time, took a poll of that, how many people would he find responding? How many people? Well, we looked at Romans chapter 3, didn't we? There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks God. How many people would he find? Zero. Even if that were what it meant, he wouldn't find anybody. And it doesn't mean that because God is, as I've said, the producer and the director of the script of the world that he has created. And God has planned all that comes to pass, including those who would ultimately come to him and everything in between. And that causes lots of people difficulty. It's difficult to get our minds around a sovereign God and our responsibility before the sovereign God. Harry Ironside was pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago for a number of years. And he told the story of a member of his church. This man gave a testimony one night, told how God had saved him, what God had done for him in his life. Over and over again, he extolled God. He gave God the glory for all that he had done in saving him. And after the service, someone went up to him and he said, I appreciated all that you had to say, but you didn't give a balanced picture. You talked all about what God has done. and You never said a word about what you have done. God did his part, but you didn't talk about your part. And that man responded, you're right, I didn't. I should have responded that my part was this. I did the running. God's part was he did the chasing until he caught me. That's the way the Bible presents it. We have a God who seeks us, not the other way around. Now, it means then, when applied to God, his active participation in planning what is going to happen. This word foreknowledge is used a handful of times in your New Testament. Sometimes it means to choose or to plan. Other times we're going to see it means to have a relationship with. I'll give you a couple of examples of this word foreknowledge, meaning to choose or to plan. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he begins to describe the work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And in verse 22, this is what Peter says of Acts chapter 2. Two. It's on the screen. Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, the way that is constructed in verse 22, his deliberate plan and his foreknowledge, that is something in Greek. You can listen to this and then throw it away. It's something in Greek called the Granville Sharp Rule. And it simply means that when you put two concepts together with a particular construction, the second one is part of the first one. So when it says the foreknowledge, that's part of the deciding ahead of time, his deliberate plan. They are linked together. Foreknowledge is part of the deliberate plan. We could translate it this way. He, Jesus, was handed over according to his deliberate, which is his, his, deliberate plan, which is his foreknowledge. 
Peter is equating God's plan with his foreknowledge. There are two other passages in Scripture that talk about God and his foreknowledge. In each of them, we have this same concept. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 2, it says, You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to, the obe- to, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, it speaks of God's determination to send Jesus Christ, God the Son, to be the Savior. And here's how the text literally reads, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The NIV says Christ was chosen in place of foreknown because it's the same concept. Obviously, it's talking about Christ being foreordained, pre-planned. God pre-planned that Jesus Christ would be the solution to man's sin problem. There's another way that foreknowledge is sometimes used in Scripture. Sometimes it means to set one's affection upon another. In Amos chapter 3, the first part of your Bible, God says through the prophet, to the nation of Israel, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Now that does not mean, friends, you know, I surveyed all the people of the earth and when I saw you, I didn't have to survey anywhere else. I stopped. I only know you. I haven't gotten to know anybody else, says God. No. It means you only have I set my affection on. You only have I chosen in love. And in the same way, God has set his affection on sinners like you and me. Thanks be to God. And he has chosen to save us in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of the fact that we are running from him. He is the one who does the chasing and brings us to himself. It begins with God, and it begins with God's loving choice, foreknowing. And it begins, I say in your outline, with God's sovereign choice. Verse 29 says, Those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The word predestined means to set the boundaries beforehand, and so to ordain. It's a further step beyond foreknowledge. In foreknowing, God set his affection on those he would save. God chose. Now this word describes, now get this, that for which we were chosen, what we were were destined for. And what are we destined for, according to verse 29? To be like Jesus Christ. One day, we will be perfectly reflecting the attributes of Christ's goodness. He's predestined us to be like Jesus. But he's predestined us not just for our good, that is certainly for our good, but also for the glory of Christ, because it says that he might be, verse 29, the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus Christ is God become flesh. He was born as a human, joined humanity to what he has always been for eternity, and he became the God-man. And of those who are born of woman, he is to be the firstborn, the preeminent one among his family of brothers and sisters. So the gospel begins with who? The gospel begins with God. And then what about us? Secondly, in your outline, it includes people. It begins with God. It's God's idea. It's God in eternity past. 
<laughs> it's God for God's glory and the good of those that he has set his affection upon. And it includes people. People who are, I say in your outline, in need. Now the Bible presents this need, friends, as a turning, a transforming from our rebellion against God so that we now are turned to God and our affections are no longer on our own idolatrous hearts but now turn toward the God who has made us and who has graciously saved us. So when we say it includes people in need, please understand what we're in need of is a transformation from our sin. The reason I emphasize that is because there are many, many preachers and churches who talk about our needs as if our need is information. You know, I would, I would, be, I would, I would follow God if I knew how, if I knew better, if you would just instruct me on some techniques. Now, I'm all for application based upon the truth of Scripture. So is the Bible. Verses 12 through 16, chapters 12 through 16 of the book of Romans. But it starts with God, His holiness, His character, and our need to turn from our rebellion against Him. Friends, hear this. Romans chapter 1 says that every person who comes into the world has information about God. Because that which may be known about Him is clearly seen in what has been made. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. But our sin causes us to hold that down. We've got to lose the idea that the gospel is about giving people more information for better techniques to be more clever sinners. It is about people being transformed from the pursuits of their idolatrous hearts to their pursuits of the Creator who owns them and the Savior who loves them. It includes people, people who are in that kind of need. And includes then people who are called, says verse 29. Those he predestined, he also called. The word call is used two ways in your New Testament. Theologians categorize it as the general call and the effectual call. The general call is whoever will may come. And every time the gospel, the good news message goes out, there is a general call to everyone within its hearing, come. And God bids, come. But because of our sinful, rebellious hearts, we will not come. There is no one who seeks God unless there is the second aspect to the call, the effectual call. The Holy Spirit of God moves on the heart of that rebellious center, sinner and changes that heart from a heart of rebellion to one who sees his or her need and opens it to the Savior who lived and died for them. Ezekiel was given a vision the first part of your Bible, the prophet Ezekiel, to describe what God would do in the nation of Israel. It's called the vision of the valley of dry bones. In his vision, he saw this valley filled with the bones of dead men. And then God told Ezekiel to do a very strange thing. He said, preach to the valley of dry bones. <laughs> now those bones were so dry, there was not a sinew of free will anywhere. Let him who has ears hear. They're completely dead. And Ezekiel preached, and in this vision, the Spirit of God 
moved like the blowing of the wind, and suddenly these bones connected, and they stood upright, and they were covered with flesh and sinew, and an army of the Lord stood before him. That's a perfect illustration of the effectual calling of God on the stony, rebellious heart of a sinful person. He breathes life into those that he calls. The Word of God tells us that we come into this world dead in trespasses and sins, unable and unwilling to respond to the call of God unless He changes us. The gospel begins with God. It includes people. I say thirdly in your outline, it requires Christ. God's not only foreknown and predestined and called, but verse 29 says, those He called, He also justified. Now, I'm going to spend some time in the next few weeks talking in some depth about justification. But justification is, for now, the act in which God declares us to be righteous, even though we're not. Now, how can God do that? I'm not righteous. So how can God say I am? Does that make God a liar? Well, in the book of Romans, God does this because of two transactions that have taken place. God is able to say Ken Brown is righteous even though he is not because Romans chapter 4 speaks of something called imputation. That is, counting, crediting the account of someone else to another. And guess whose account gets credited to us when we come to God? It's the account of Jesus Christ. And His perfect righteousness is imputed to me and imputed to you. And then we are justified. We are declared righteous by God. And the other thing that happens is, not only is Christ's righteousness counted to us even though we are not righteousness, but our sin is counted to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin bore our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The gospel begins with God. It includes people. It's centered upon Christ. It requires Him for our justification. And then lastly, the gospel guarantees eternal life. Verse 30 says, those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also, notice, glorified. And that's a word speaking of our resurrected bodies, our glorified bodies in the last day. Now, I, want, I say the gospel guarantees that. I want you to notice this in verse 30. All four of the things that are said there, predestined and called and justified and glorified, they all four happen to the same people. It is those predestined, those people are called. And those people are, who are called are justified. And those people who are justified will be glorified in the future, guaranteed by God. No exceptions. Everyone predestined by God will make it to the end, thanks be to God. Because it is His work. And that is why the great apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, notice what it says on the screen. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. 
He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is what we call the security of the believer. Why are we secure? (laughs) That security that I will be with God someday in heaven goes all the way back to the truth that God foreknew and predestined in eternity past. And in time, he called and he justified. And in eternity future, therefore, because of that, I am confident of this, that he who began this good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, as we end, I want to point out one last thing quickly. You say, okay, well, that's okay. You explained that fairly thoroughly. On a day when we lost an hour of sleep, But most of the people in here have already come to Jesus. So why do we need to know that? We turn back to chapter 1. And I want you to see to whom this full 16-chapter explanation of the gospel is given. It starts out in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verse 7 says, to whom this is written. I am writing this to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Who needs the gospel? Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs the general call of the gospel. And then once we have responded to the call of the gospel, as these people had, Paul says you need to rehearse the gospel as well. You need to see all of its intricacies. You need to see its implications. You need to see how it applies to you in your life. You need to see how the gospel is for real life. And that's why I say in the take-home truth, the gospel is good news, not just for the next life, but for this life and the next. We're going to look at it together over the next few weeks. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your grace given to us in the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who is central to it. Lord God, help us over these next few weeks to gain an appreciation anew and afresh for your goodness to us through the gospel. And help us then as individuals and as a church corporately to be grounded upon the truth of the gospel, to live out its implications in our homes, in our workplaces, and in this community to bring glory to your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.